Due to the current shelter-in-place restrictions, this episode of the IQT podcast is being recorded with all of us in our respective homes. So we apologize in advance for any hiccups or stray sounds that may make their way into the podcast. In the wake of the current global pandemic, the healthcare industry is changing the paradigm on what it means to provide excellent quality of care to patients with and without COVID-19. Among many things, this means rethinking fundamentals such as how healthcare is delivered from provider to patient and how technology can play a role. This rethinking is motivated by a number of very important needs. Hospitals need to avoid being overrun. Healthcare workers need to stay safe and healthy so they can continue to deliver timely and high quality care. And patients need to have ready access to healthcare and trust the care they are receiving. This means starting to adjust how patient and provider interact. Things like telehealth and remote monitoring and digital health in general are becoming increasingly commonplace. We are at the beginning of a series of changes to traditional healthcare delivery and are left wondering which, if any, of these changes are here to stay even after the pandemic is over. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the IQT Podcast. I am your host, Vishal Sandesara, and on today's show, we will talk about the changing face of healthcare delivery in light of the current global pandemic, and we also discuss how wearable sensor technology is playing a big role in this evolution. Joining me today are my IQT colleagues, Dr. Dan Hanfling and Kevin Schaefer. Dan is on the technical staff with VNext, IQT's expert group focused on preparedness and response to infectious disease emergencies and pandemic events. He practices emergency medicine at the Level 1 Trauma Center just outside of Washington, D.C., and has traveled across the country and across the globe, responding to many of the catastrophic disaster events over the past two decades. He also co-chairs the National Academy of Sciences Forum on Medical and Public Health Preparedness. Kevin is on the technical staff at IQT, serving as technical lead for autonomous systems investments, stemming from his experience designing and evaluating advanced overhead sensor systems. Such sensors present opportunities beyond simple reconnaissance and autonomous movement. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for being here. Let's begin by talking about why COVID-19 is providing an important context at this time for for changing healthcare and delivery mechanisms. And and Dan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure thing, Vishal. Well, you know, the way way I would describe COVID-19 and and what's happening in healthcare is uh, an analogy to sports. You know, COVID-19 is a contact illness and medical care delivery is a contact sport. And therefore you've got a number of risks uh, when you bring those two elements together. And so when we think about it, you know, any highly transmissible, particularly respiratory uh, illness brings a lot of risk to providers you know, especially in the context of the shortages in personal protective equipment that, that we've all heard about. Uh, but in addition, uh, you know, the notion of being able to manage an epidemic, uh, particularly an epidemic that results in a surge in patient care uh, requests for services, uh, suggests that we're going to have to find other means of evaluating patients and delivering that care. And therefore, I think, um, think COVID-19 is is basically opening up our eyes to a, a fundamental change in the way healthcare might be delivered. And what is it that we're already starting to see now? And, and what do you think we can anticipate as healthcare delivery continues to shift? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, I think the kind of changes that we're talking about are really related 
in, 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 to the intersection of technological advancements and the role that technology can play in supporting patient care delivery. So back to my first point, I mean, at the end of the day, patients like to see their doctor, at least I, I hope they do, at least I hope my patients like to see me. Sometimes they don't, given that I'm in the emergency room. But, you know, for the most part, patients like to see their doctors, but they also, you know, have busy lives and they like to make sure that there is efficiency in those interactions. And I think that what we, what we recognize now is that um, there's an opportunity to take advantage of technologies. And so with the advent of, the, of this pandemic, with the advent of, of, of this COVID-19 virus in hospitals and in communities across the United States, we saw a number of, of changes put in place uh, by the current administration, the most notable of which were reducing the barriers to allow uh, telemedicine consultations to be conducted. And as a result of that, um, we've seen many, many uh, um, uh, examples of, uh, you know, significant increase in the use of telemed telemedicine and telehealth services uh, to support uh, the current outbreak. Yeah, I think one of the key terms you really talked about here is delivery. So about two months ago, prior to all of this really beginning in nerds, there's really only a demand for delivery of packages in a, a quick or contactless environment. Now we're seeing a shift in an overall appetite to kind of have a completely touchless or contactless economy. And the next logical iteration of that is things that aren't just physical goods. So these are things where it's just communication in a remote environment. Um, medical is the most timely of those. And that's where I think we're gonna to continue to see the shift and hopefully we'll touch upon a bunch of the technologies that are going to enable that moving forward. That's great. Dan, you and I were having a discussion and uh, you reminded me that InQtel had recently convened uh, constituents from the USG as well as uh, some, of, some folks from the startup space to look into pandemic response in general. And coincidentally, the timing was such that that all happened just before the current health crisis that we're in. What's it been like seeing some of the things that you discussed go from theoretical to practical from then till now? Yeah, so, yeah, so exactly. In, in December, the first week in December of 2019, we brought a group of folks together from inside and outside of government, including a couple of startups, to focus on the issue of how would, how would digital health technologies uh, help us manage and deal with what we would anticipate to be a surge in demand for healthcare services uh, in a pandemic event? And how could we use those technologies to conduct, you know, elements uh, required with regards to triage and, you know, uh, saving the hospitals, you know, flattening the curve, all the sorts of things that we've heard discussed over the uh, over the span of the last few, you know, few months. And um, and so, you know, to see that go from a roundtable discussion into uh, necessity by necessity implementation, you know, has been dizzying to say the least. Uh, but I'm proud to say that, uh, you know, we at InQtel were really instrumental in helping to support uh, the recognition of this uh, role of technology. And in fact, we had a hand in in supporting both uh, the development of a, of a digital health directory that was ultimately uh, taken on by the American Telemedicine Association and the Consumer Technology Association. And now, uh, more recently, the um, uh, development of the telehealth.hhs.gov website, uh, which is a one-stop shopping uh, portal, if you will, for both providers and patients who are interested in digital health and telehealth. So there's no question, you know, 
a lot of the ideas that we began to talk about uh, even before uh, the uh, recognition that there was a, a virus circumnavigating the globe have now begun to be put into to practical use. You know, for a large majority of us, these words that we're using as we're talking here, th things like telehealth and, and remote monitoring, digital health in general, um, I, I get the sense that these are overall sort of new terms to our self-care lexicon. In other words, these aren't sort of commonplace words that that people attribute like, oh, this, this is a, in my arsenal of things I should, I should take advantage of. At a high level, uh, I believe there's a lack of knowledge and thus maybe even some fear around what is possible here. And you know, when I think of telehealth, very naively, I just jump immediately to, you know, similar to what we're doing now, a Zoom call with perhaps a, a medical doctor at the other end. But I get the sense that we're talking about a lot more than just that here. Um, so in, in your opinions, could you, and perhaps in your perspectives and, and experiences, can you talk a little bit about what these terms really mean and perhaps the motivation behind some of them coming into such common use. Yeah, so, um, so you know, the term digital health actually was coined 20 years ago. It was actually described in an article um, that was in the Journal of Ambulatory Care Management. And it was defined as the convergence of healthcare and the internet, uh, thinking back to really the advent of the internet. And that has grown to encompass, you know, telehealth and telemedicine, which is the delivery of services um, with clinical applications, if you will, and, and, uh, and has now extended to include remote patient monitoring, where we actually can provide physiologic monitoring using sensors uh, from re remote, you know, standoff locations. Uh, so, um, and the last bit to, to add to that is that it has included as technology and computer science has evolved in the last two decades. It has evolved and, in, and included the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning so that you actually have smart systems that based on data and data acquisition can make inferences um, that the human physician or clinician uh, used to make previously. So it is a growing and expanding field uh, and um, and I'd be curious, you know, um, from Kevin's perspective, you know, with your expertise, Kevin, in, in sensors, you know, if, is there something similar in the in the general, you know, in the context of general use of, of sensors um, that is equivalent to this notion of digital health uh, development? Yeah, I, th I actually think there's quite a few analogs here. The easiest one to think about um, when we talk about an autonomous system a lot of our goals is accomplishing some mission or going from point A to B to accomplish some mission. And that's really not dissimilar to what's going on in the medical world. You have the onset of some symptom or something that doesn't quite seem right, call that your point A. And ultimately what you want to get to is a point B where you're healthy again. Along the way, there's all sorts of things you can do that. You can call a doctor, drive to the doctor, talk to the doctor, go to the pharmacy. Now there's technologies in play today that certainly can make any number of those steps more efficient and hopefully uh, operate in a more cost-efficient standpoint as too. So essentially the overall architecture is not dissimilar to what we look at when we're examining any sort of, any sort of autonomous system. I'd also like to ask you, perhaps we can talk about this later in our conversation, but you know, with, with anything that involves data, especially health data, and in this case, a lot of, a lot of personal information, uh, security and trust and all these sort of commonplace words that we hear a lot about when we're talking about simple things like using social media or, uh, you know, buying things online. I'd like to get your thoughts perhaps later in the conversation just around trust and data privacy and stuff. But before we jump into that, I want to ask sort of a meta level question. Uh, and this is to both of you. 
So given the fact that the government has sprung into action, it's sort of lowered the barriers for delivery of telehealth by, by making it such that, you know, you can deliver these services now and, you know, across state lines, medical practitioners can do so. And, and a variety of other things that have been adjusted to allow for these sorts of changes to occur. What in your sense are things that, that are just for the here and now to deal with this pandemic by things that may be lasting and, and even continue as the new way of order for, for healthcare delivery beyond, beyond the pandemic, perhaps? Yeah, so I think I think the probably the the enduring legacy of this pandemic will be the recognition that that patients begin to feel comfortable uh, receiving healthcare, you know, via a, a telemedicine or a telehealth connection, uh, and and I think that that is that has you know, in addition to the regulatory barriers and maybe some of the technological barriers that existed in the past, I think one of the biggest issues was the stigma, like. I, doesn't my doctor need to see me? Um, now, of course, for certain things, uh, particularly um, those that require physical evaluation or manipulation, so think about orthopedics. If you have an orthopedic injury, it's going to be awfully hard to conduct that evaluation remotely. However, there are still efficiencies, I think, that can be put into place. Think about the time that you walk into the doctor's office, the first thing they do is they give you a pen and a and a, uh, you know, a clipboard, and you have to fill out all this information, which you're pretty sure you already filled out before, but no, they make you fill it out again. You know, I think that, that telemedicine and this level of connectivity, uh, digital connectivity, if you will, uh, is going to further streamline and make more efficient even those sorts of uh, visits. And I bet there's something to be said about the overarching adoption of telemedicine or digital health and perhaps the, the continuity of a medical record, which we could save that conversation for another day. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I hear what you're saying, Dan, about having to self-report the same stuff 15 times over and over between primary care and specialists and you know, all the other healthcare providers that I have. Kevin, any, any thoughts from you on uh, lasting change versus things that are perhaps uh, for the here and now? Yeah, it's a bit of a stretch, but it's very similar to the expansion of the shared economy. So. If you think back to 10, 15 years ago, when you go in on a ride somewhere that you weren't using your car, the only thing you would do is get in a, a cab that's licensed with the city of operation. Now you're more than happy to pull up your phone, say whoever's first available, come pick me up. You have no idea who that is and it's fine. Now obviously the catch 22 of that is now the shared economy is the high touch environment. We are going to need to figure out how to kind of sanitize that environment but it's no different here. It's the next logical iteration of that kind of expansion we've seen the past decade. You both have recently put together and, and released a guide to help people better understand sensors. So when we're talking about you know, the, the, the long, long existing concept of digital health and now telehealth, telemedicine, and uh, perhaps remote monitoring, you both put a lot of thought into and have released this sensor guide uh, that helps people sort of navigate their way through commercial wearables and how, how they may map to key vital signs and but even often help to supplement digital health efforts. Could you talk to us a little bit more about what these sensors can detect and, and how these remote sensors could be useful for COVID response, as well as just beyond what, where we are right now response in terms of uh, healthcare delivery? Yeah, so, so you know, we, we started this conversation by actually examining what we thought might be pressing need, you know, use cases in, and needs in the context of the COVID outbreak. And we identified, you know, a few uh, top of mind uh, potential use cases. As an emergency physician, I think a lot about the patients who I know are sick but are not quite sick enough to require hospitalization. 
and I know they're going home. And for me, that's a big black hole. You know, is somebody looking after them? Are they connected to a, a healthcare provider or do they have another network of family or friends? And so one of the use cases we talked about was, could we send patients home and give them specific instructions with regards to how to monitor their own physical well-being? And if there were changes in those parameters, those would be indications to come back. Um, we also recognize, you know, the fact that uh, nursing home patients and healthcare workers who are, we, we know, two of the big risk factors, you know, might benefit from having uh, these kinds of, um, you know, remote sensing capabilities. And then finally, in the, in the, in the thought about the run-up to what we thought would be a big surge in demand for care, the establishment of what we describe as alternate care sites, where you have patients in an out-of-hospital environment that is not really a regulated medical environment. Think about, you know, the, the big stadium that's converted into a, uh, a field hospital. You know, wouldn't we want to know the physical status of those patients? Um, and so we thought about, about those use cases, and what we, what we recognized is that, um, you know, there were specific data points that we could uh, begin to evaluate, um, specifically heart rate, respiratory rate, uh, pulse ox or SpO2, which is the uh, measurement of the oxygen content in your blood, uh, temperature. Uh, these were all, you know, uh, relatively straightforward, relatively s uh, simple physiologic, um, you know, uh, parameters that could give us an indication that a patient is either at baseline or changing from baseline uh, and becoming potentially uh, ill or requiring, you know, um, in-person attention. So that's really how we started started our discussion, and I think that's that's where this guide um, seeks to give a little bit of, of insight. And Kevin, do you have any thoughts on just how, you know, we, Dan just mentioned uh, these vital signs that are, are important when you're sort of monitoring someone at, at a distance or remotely. Um, in, in your opinion, and perhaps things that you've, you've heard or read, how trustworthy are these? How do they work uh, compared to the things that, you know, already existed traditionally? So I'm glad you finally asked me a question that's a little bit more in my wheelhouse. But the reality is there's two primary uh, devices that Dan's really talking about here. I'm sure everybody has heard of the term ECG, an electrocardiogram. That's a very accurate way of directly measuring essentially the heart signals. And you can get a heart rate measurement off of that. It's great. It's accurate. In hospitals, they put multiple, these on multiple portions on your body redundancy to make sure it's accurate. So there's no difference here than some of the sensor you just wear in a gym class today. Uh, the downside is that's all you're getting is heart rate. Now, Dan also alluded to, you know, pulse oximetry, things of that nature. There's another technique that's um, you're probably familiar with, but not, don't even realize you're using it, which is called photoplasmography. And really, uh, that's a fancy way of saying using light to measure volume. And what that is, is if you have a wearable, whether it's a, a watch or a fitness tracker, you might see some green lights on that. All that's doing is shooting lights through your tissue into your bloodstream and seeing variations in the feedback of that light source in the detector on the device. And from that, there's a wealth of information that can be gleaned. It can see changes in volume, which is gonna be an indication of how your heart's pumping, essentially your heart rate. And then additionally, what it can do as it uses different types of light, um, whether your blood is oxygenated, you know, your oxygenated hemoglobin or deoxygenated, you get variations in reading where you can begin to backtrack out um, how much oxygenation there is there as the pulse oximetry that Dan alluded to. And Kevin, you've also, you and I have talked about uh, heart rate monitoring. I actually 
coincidentally have uh, I, I have a continuous heart rate monitor on right now that if I look at it, it'll just tell me my immediate beats per beats per minute. Um, not elevated right now, by the way, which is good. I guess no stage fright. What is the what is it when it comes to heart rate sensing? At least I feel like maybe this this is some of the most common type of uh, product that's available. Anything that I should be concerned with, you know, continuous versus perhaps interval monitoring, pros and cons of any of those types of sensors. I don't, there's not too many concerns you want uh, to keep an eye out for. Mostly in your day-to-day -day life, what you're worried about is changes over time. So you have your baseline and those are very good at detecting those. Now, absolute accuracy, there might be some trade-offs there, which is where you would want a more sophisticated device you might find in the hospital. But I think a vast majority of conditions or onset of symptoms are going to be addressed in those drastic changes over a short period. Yeah, I was just I was I was just going to say. I mean, you know, um, Kevin Kevin laid out very clearly sort of the um, the utility of these uh, of these uh, technological sensors, and I want to emphasize both the notion of establishing a baseline that actually, you know, at any given time, your heart rate might be up, you're excited or you're bored or what have you, and it's really gathering data over time that becomes important when we start to think about its utility. Uh, with regards to being a biomarker or an indicator that you might be um, getting sick. And, um, and, and we're really in the infancy of examining uh, the, the, these, these parameters to help us identify just how successful they are. And so one specific parameter that's being looked at now is what we call heart rate variability, which is actually an, an indication of our sympathetic nervous system. So not not the nervous system that we're used to thinking about that move our arms and legs and allow us to run and jump and so on, but actually the sympathetic nervous system that is controlling, um, controlling activities inside the body. And that is uh, thought to be particularly sensitive to physiologic changes uh, driven by, uh, by infection. Uh, and so again, you know, we're really at the infancy of these sorts of evaluations. Uh, but I think that one of the things, again, back to the COVID outbreak, uh, that is a silver lining is that we're going to get a chance to learn a lot about these potential biomarkers and hopefully be able to apply these in the future. I mean, how great would it be to have something on your wrist that you check in the morning and you go, wow, you know, all of a sudden my heart rate variability has gone down and my, my respiratory rate has gone up. And, you know, those are indicators that I might be getting sick. Maybe I shouldn't go into the office today. And then sure enough, by afternoon, You've got yourself a low-grade fever or a cough or a cold. Question to both of you. We talked a lot about the, the different vital signs. Dan just told us about some of the vital signs that are of concern. Um, how much can we rely on and trust that some of these at-home sensors that we have? Which, which of the sensor categories are perhaps more, more trustworthy or, or, or which ones require a little bit more time to perhaps bake? Perhaps that's a sensor question for, for Kevin. And then my follow-up question to Dan is simply, Given that there may be uncertainties in some of the ways that these sensors operate, when, is it on, when does the burden fall onto a healthcare provider to say, okay, look, I know that these readings are sometimes off. I don't necessarily need to worry about this reading as much as I need to worry about or be concerned with the accuracy of another reading. We'll start with Kevin on the sensor question first. Yeah, as far as the limitations go, I think it's ultimately a responsibility at the consumer level. You need to know what you're buying, what it's good for, what it isn't good for, when to defer to a medical professional. As I mentioned, the, the, the science of how these sensors work, it's relatively complicated, but it's pretty much set science. This isn't, these aren't new devices. We haven't discovered some new phenomenology. 
it's known what you can calculate off of these readings. So you need to take anything out there with a grain of salt. If they're saying you can do this new thing, you need to realize that right now we really are just limited to you know heart rate readings, some pulse oximetry, and then any analytics you can glean off of those. But I'll turn it over to Dan if he wants to add anything further there. Yeah, no, I think I think I think you're right. I mean, you know, heart rate is probably going to be the most consistent across all um, all types of platforms. Uh, it's fairly straightforward, and um, and those uh, you know those uh, um, sensors that are able to give you a respiratory rate. We know that respiratory rate is quite sensitive with regards to respiratory illness. Uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, and it's interesting because as I think back of, of, about my own trajectory and interest in this space. I go all the way back to the anthrax attacks in 2001, when uh, in our emergency department uh, in Fairfax, Virginia, we saw over a thousand patients in a two-week period of time, all of whom thought they had anthrax. You know, their chief complaint: "Well, why are you here today? I think I have anthrax." Oh, okay, you too. You know, some of them came from Dunkin' Donuts. They had white powder on the counter, and you know, they they thought they were exposed, or you know, some people, you know, were were just uh, frightened because they had picked up the mail. But the bottom line is that we actually, we looked back through, through the thousand plus patients who we cared for, in which we successfully diagnosed two of the postal workers with, with anthrax. And we saw that patients who presented with a fever and tachycardia or a rapid heart rate greater than 100 were actually more likely to, to rule in or to have some infectious illness. Uh, and, and that really was the beginning of my interest in thinking, how do you take broad populations and take basic physiologic monitoring as an initial step to triage those who might require further evaluation? And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, as Kevin said, it, it's really heart rate um, that is most consistent now. And I think that that is something um, that could be useful. And the question, Vishal, that you asked me is, you know, how do you trust these? Well, at the end of the day, if you don't feel well or you're not sure and you're uncertain, never hesitate to reach out to your, you know, to your physician or to your clinician and say, you know, I'm not sure what these numbers mean or I don't feel that good. Do you mind if I set up to come, come in or you show up to an emergency department or urgent care center? If I might offer one more sanity check too. So something to keep in mind with any sensor where it's a wearable you're sticking on your body or a camera you're buying, form factor is very important. I've worked a lot in the past on satellite-based telescope systems. You aren't going to use those to take a picture in your living room. So just as if there's a camera that says it can now take your pulse, you know, oxygenation level, that's probably not going to be the right fit. You want it designed from the hardware level up all the way up to the, through the software stack to be for a specific purpose. That's kind of an initial check, and you can throw up a big red flag if it doesn't, you know, meet that criteria. Kevin, one of the other things that you just reminded me of uh, was you also, you and I had a discussion, and you, you were talking about how the concept of a dedicated device or dedicated sensor versus one perhaps that you share with your, with your family. There's a interesting ramifications there on not only with sizing, but also with the fact that, you know, sensing techniques may be different for people of different ages. Uh, so I, I'd like to call that to, to our listeners' attentions as well. Dan, for those of us that have or may be looking to purchase some of these uh, various, you know, wearables and sensors, could you quickly just remind us of what the thresholds for normal are for things like oxygen saturation, respiratory rate, and temperature and heart rate? 
Oh yeah, that's important. Uh, yeah, so you know, heart rate. You know, any any heart rate greater than a hundred uh, is what we define as tachycardia, rapid heart rate, and uh, and that might be concerning. Now, if you've just come from a three mile or five mile run, uh, I'd expect your heart rate to be above a hundred. Um, but you know, if you are just sitting, smoking and joking on your couch watching football, and your heart rate is well over a hundred, and you don't have a vested interest in either team that's playing, that might be a little bit concerning. Uh, respiratory rate, probably any respiratory rate less than 20 is normal. If you are huffing and puffing or if you're having a hard time speaking and breathing, that would be of, of concern. Uh, temperature greater than 100.4, uh, 100 decimal point four. I can't tell you how many times patients tell me, yeah, my temperature was 104. And it's like, oh, you mean 100.4? Yeah, yeah, 100.4 uh, is an elevated temperature. And then um, the SpO2, the pulse oximetry, actually anything less than 92% begins to um, become what we describe as hypoxemia or a low oxygen uh, blood content. And, uh, and in fact, with COVID, bringing this conversation back to COVID, one of the interesting findings that's been reported by emergency physicians, both in the um, peer-reviewed literature and in the, and the lay press, has been a, um, a recognition that some patients with COVID have quite significant what they describe as silent hypoxemia. In other words, they sit and they speak just like we're speaking normally right now, and yet if you put a pulse oximeter on them, their oxygen content is somewhere in the 70 or 80%. It's almost like they're climbing Mount Everest. Uh, and this is unique in that they are quite hypoxemic, but they don't appear to be short of breath until such time as they're, all their systems crash, and then they, they require critical, critical care and resuscitation. So, so a pulse ox, you know, in the, in anywhere in the low 90s, but certainly lower than 92% would be of concern. And Kevin, it, let's say we are in the market, some of our listeners might be in the market for buying uh, a device of some kind with, with sensors or a suite of sensors on it. Uh, what, in your opinion, should be some of the considerations that, are, that someone should make before making a purchase uh, to make sure they're buying the right thing? First, I would say buy something you think you're actually going to wear or use. Otherwise, you're just wasting your money. And then more forward-leaning, I want you to think about how the company that is selling the product to you is ultimately going to make their money and what their motivation for the product is. If it's a product that they get the money from the hardware purchase and that it, that's it, there's not a big incentive on their part to introduce new functionality in the back end from a processing standpoint. So devices where they're offering them up with some sort of subscription service are probably going to be the devices that you're gonna get medical utility out of. Because that's to say, they know you have the device 12 months, 24 months from now, they wanna keep your business. So they're going to be researching into what seems to be art of possible with the sensors that they have versus the company that sells it once and then is just on to the next iteration of that product. And for those of us that are, say, not in the market, but we do happen to have a smartphone in our pocket, uh, any advice there, Kevin, on what perhaps we could do with the things we might already own or perhaps not do it, that we're being told we can do? Yes, there's, there's plenty of things you can do if you read enough on the internet. There's DIYs for practically anything these days. I would uh, harken back to my form factor discussion. There's kind of a right tool for each application. The basic components of uh, a PPG system is a light source and a detector. 
your phone happens to have both of those because it has a camera and a flash. Should you be using those to measure your heart rate? Probably not. Should you be using those to figure out your pulse oxygenation levels? Probably not. There's a way of doing it, um, igniting that source, getting an infection back and saying you've done it. But again, I would take those with a heavy grain of salt. It really goes back to form factor and the right tool for the right application. Makes sense. A question to both of you. Uh, returning back to a topic we addressed earlier in our discussion, uh, and that is that of privacy and security. Can you both tell me a little bit about how you think or how you view privacy and security in light of this new digital health uh, you know, era that we're in? Can it be preserved? Do we, do we need to give up some control in order to make all this work? Is there, is there a healthy trade-off we need to be concerned with and allow for? What are some of your perspectives there? We'll start with Dan first. Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to, I think this is going to be one of the other enduring legacies of this outbreak, which is um, how to thread the needle between what becomes very practical with regards to sharing information and a, a level of comfort uh, with regards to who gets that information and what they might do with it. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know that we're, we're even close to um, being able to decide or strike a consensus in terms of what that balance looks like. You know, in the healthcare world, we've been, our, our uh, interaction with data and with patient information, you know, protected information, you know, has been governed by the passage of HIPAA and, um, you know, rules, um, you know, that really uh, highlight the importance of privacy and, and the maintenance of, of, and the sanctity of that information, the maintenance of, of that, of that privacy. Uh, but um, I think there will be trade-offs going forward, and I think it'll be largely across, you know, the, um, the age divide. I mean, old guys like me with gray hair are probably going to be less likely to feel as comfortable with the use of some of these tools than some of my younger counterparts, like you guys, uh, who have grown up, you know, uh, with this. And I, I, I describe this as sort of, you know, digital immigrants versus digital natives. You know, you guys understand these technologies and and like my kids you know you, you you just take them for granted whereas you know we have to opt in and i think that will be a part of this conversation going forward and kevin question to you you mentioned earlier you know that on the back end you can use services like machine learning and artificial intelligence can be used to enrich some of the services that uh, can be provided to those wearing some of these sensors that provide so much raw data what are your thoughts on how this data should be safeguarded or if it is even going to be safeguarded or if it's regulated in any sense. And it, you know, we always hear this concept of how big data is enabling so much in the machine learning space and the deep learning space. Uh, but there's obviously this, this, you know, regulatory backdrop that the healthcare industry deals with. What are some of your thoughts on, on the capabilities of sensors and sort of some of the limitations and regulations that exist that may or may not help? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, right now, any data off these wearables is quote unquote safeguarded as safe as anything can be. You're relying on whatever company and application is uh, serves as a repository for that data. But as we move forward, I think what's going to happen and what needs to happen is there's going to be a need to be a next uh, layer of applications above that, which is really in the medical realm. And that's where somebody is going to have to take the time and effort as they use that data for medical purpose to actually secure it in compliant with all the standards that Dan alluded to. Until that happens, I do think there should be a level of distrust with anybody claiming they're going to offer medical capability in these current platforms. Understood. 
Kevin Schaefer, Dr. Dan Hansling, I'd like to thank you so much for your time and for sharing all this with us. To our listeners, in case you want to learn more, I encourage you to take a look at the sensor guide that we just talked about today. Uh, in it, you can find how commercially available sensors are used for remote symptom monitoring, and also you'll see highlights and capabilities of constraints of these sensors. You can find it, uh, along with a lot of other COVID-19 related resources, at bnext.org. That's B as in boy, N-E-X-T dot org. From all of us at IQT, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. I'm your host, Vishal Sandaceras, signing off until next time. <laughs>